Welcome to another episode of the Kids Media Club podcast, where we take a deep dive into the ever-changing world of kids entertainment. I'm Andy Williams. I'm Joe Redfern, and I'm here with Emily Horgan. Hello, everyone. And we are here with uh, Ian Whitaker, who is an analyst, and he will be introducing himself, but he has definitely come into our spheres through posting generally sensible and intelligent stuff. Mostly sensible intelligence stuff on LinkedIn. <laughs> <Ian>. <laughs> Would you like to give us a bit more context? Yeah, I was going to say, I, <laughs> hopefully it's got some use. I don't know about that, though. <laughs> it does feel a bit of a taunt at times. Um, hi, everyone. Uh, as Emily said, um, I'm Ian Whitaker. Just a little bit about my background uh, from things. I was an equities analyst uh, in the London financial markets for 20 years. I covered the media and tech sectors. During that time, I was twice City AM Analyst of the Year uh, across all the sectors. I then, three years ago, set up my own advisory consultancy service, which is Liberty Sky Advisors. And I write generally on the media and tech space. I do a variety of things, whether that's around a subscription service, providing advisory consultancy services, now training, uh, amongst other things, and also a commentator as well. So... Um, I would say sort of jack of all trades, but that that can come across quite badly uh, with things. So so just let's say that what I try to do is I try to marry what's going on in the media and tech uh, sectors uh, with also as well what's happening in terms of the bigger picture trends, because they will have a key impact on what's going on within the sector as well. And you can see, give you one example of that, rise of interest rates over the past 12, 15 months. That's probably been the single biggest driver of what's happened in the tech space, both in terms of valuations, but also as well, the real changes that you've seen in the business models. And that's me. <laughs> yeah. But, well, I think of you as a, like a real grown-up who knows about real grown-up stuff. Um, and, and I tend to learn. <laughs> I tend to, I tend to like get, always get better contacts from, from reading what you're writing about when it comes to tech and media. So I appreciate and, that. And just, I'm just going to jump in. And and I used to I used to think the same about being a jack of all trades, uh, but I've come to recognise that it's actually a superpower, because in the uh, in in a tech landscape that is evolving and changing quicker than ever, uh, and within that kids media, I think you need to be uh, yeah be prepared to uh, to be resilient and and learn on the fly. So I think actually being a jack of all trades then becomes something that's well, and there's so many the different things which are going on as well. Yeah, definitely. I was going to say, speaking of which, uh, the, the the kind of latest news that's that's coming through now is seeming resolution of the the strike standoff in the US. Um, you know, that's news that's come through very recently. Um, finally, that kind of period of um, standoff has come to an end. Productions can start again. I think you know. I think we, we should expect a lot of announcements of of projects that have probably been. On, on ice or just you know the announcement of them you know hasn't been appropriate for this period so um i'm excited about that i mean that's gonna and you know it's funny because you know the people will say that the media went into it going oh we've been yeah. spending so much on content it'll be quite nice not to spend for like a few months and take a bit of a hiatus but then it started to get a bit pinchy what, what what's yeah your I, I think that's probably true it's quite interesting when you looked at the the company's financial reports what you saw was in terms of their free cash flow all of them were having meaningful upgrades to this year's cash flows off the back of not having to spend on, on new content. So I think from a temporary basis, mm -hmm. it, it was it, it yeah. had an advantage in that way. I think from from the the resolution of strike and what's gone on, my view is that this is it probably will kick the the issues down the road, but I don't think we should expect a permanent resolution of the issues that are happening here and and. Mm. What you've got, you've got several factors. If you are, for example, the writers, you could probably point to the fact of you've got higher wages. There's probably going to be overtime work that you need to do to clear the backlog. You've got minimum number of staffers. There's even things there on AI, although we've got to get the full details yet uh, as to what happens. So you can point to very tangible gains. If you're the studios, it's it's good to get this so this this uh, conflict resolved. They were coming under increasing pressure from shareholders. I think you also as well from a timing perspective, as we went into Q4, not having content or new content available mm. or been delayed would have raised questions with advertisers and Q4 is, is the most important quarter for the advertising season. So there were very good reasons why 
Yeah. Both sides need to resolve these issues. But what would say is that I don't think anything that is resolved now will necessarily be a permanent solution. I don't think we're looking at something that will stand the test of time when it comes to the two sides. I think in three years' time, we're going to be going over the same issues again. And the reason for that is because the fundamental changes that have driven this dispute are still very much there. Yeah, what does What is going to happen in terms of content moving forwards? The financial markets, their view on the streaming services, and I, I think this is something I've been saying for the past 18 months, there's a limit to how much future growth there is in streaming. It's now gone for the subscriber growth side to the ARPU side. Mm-hmm. So, and that doesn't look as though it's going to be changed, but there are obvious barriers there to driving ARPU up as much as you can. What happens in terms of the linear TV model, particularly in the US, uh, and goes on there? What does happen with AI? We don't know what AI is going to look like in three years' time. Now, do the studios. And so, what we have here is, I think, a sticking plaster that suits both sides for now, but expect both sides mm. to, to really sort of... of be back in around three years' time, arguing around many of the same points. I'd say you probably have one issue which is also underlying this as well, and and it'd be interesting to see how this develops over the next couple of years. And while this is not media and tech-specific, the implications of it will impact the media and tech sectors as it impacts all sectors. And that is the dispute that you're seeing between labour and capital, You've seen strikes significantly go up. You've seen the uh, automotive worker strikes in the US as well. And the reason why I mentioned this is there's an increasing focus from politicians on rights of workers, how they deal with the upcoming cuts. Because if you take the most, if you want to take the most sort of uh, doomsday scenarios of AI, what happened with the car industry in the 1980s, where you had tens of thousands of jobs being replaced with automation, and those jobs never really coming back, you could argue could come with the creative industries as well. So potentially what you have there, if you wanted to take a worst case scenario, are literally what you have now in terms of numbers of people who work in creative been massively scaled down. And again, those jobs never come back. So these these are issues that are not going to be resolved in a rush for a resolution because both sides really need this to be really need to get a quick fix to this. These are problems that will will last, will continue, and we're going to be debating over the next several years, if not indeed, much of the, the, the next decade and maybe beyond. Yeah, I mean, I wondered whether, in some ways, as you were saying, the studios benefited from a slight hiatus, uh, pressing pause, particularly as uh, a lot of the assumptions have just been turned on their heads uh, about how the streaming platforms are going to operate. There was before, um, as we went into the pandemic and, and through the pandemic, there was that feeling that there was an arms race, that everyone had to prove that they were committed to the streaming service. So they were piling more and more money invested into new shows and new series. And that doesn't seem to that doesn't seem to have worked from a kind of economic investment point of view. So I think in a way, the strikes allowed everyone to pause and kind of reflect and maybe hold up to the light what was going to be the right strategy coming up. So I could see how that could work. And on to your point about the labor, I I kind of I feel like particularly for visual artists and animators, they'll look to the strength of the writers and the actors strikes in terms of negotiating better conditions for them and wonder whether they would benefit from the same kind of representation, I think, from that. So I totally agree that that, that kind of race is going to, th- those conflicts are going to get amplified. They're, they're not, of, they're, they haven't been put back in the box. No, I, I, don't think. I think that's, oh, mm. sorry. And in terms of, you can, sorry, Ian. no, no, go, go ahead. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll wait. Well, <laughs> I mean, it was just really picking on some of the points that, that Andy was saying. I think, take the second one in terms of, of representation, I think that's fine. You're seeing this unionisation really creep across many parts now of the media and tech sectors where it wasn't present, really wasn't present before. Um, so, for example, I think it was Omnicom, you had the, the staffers in, in New York 
um, sort of debate whether to form a union. And while that was rejected, it's the first time that you've had that debated. So, and I think this will spread that many of these professional jobs, professional graduate jobs, where quite frankly, unionization hasn't been considered before, will now will now come to the fore. And if you look at the polls of, of young Americans, actually those in the younger age categories, the millennials, the younger part of millennials, are the most pro-union uh, of the population apart from older age groups. So you definitely have a trend there. One of the fundamental issues that you have with the streamers and this is unlike the old linear model, is when it comes to content, the streamers are like hamsters on a wheel. And what I mean by that is you've continually got to produce new content to attract new audiences in, or arguably to keep the ones that you have. And if you go back and think about it from, from a perspective, two years ago, Squid Game was, it was a show that everyone mentioned. Nobody really thinks about that anymore. Now think about, contrast that with a linear audience. You know, whether in the US or the UK, okay, shows like Coronation Street, Emmerdale, yes, their audiences are declining. They're not the 13, 14 million that they were. They're, they're less than half that now. But these are our programs that are still going after 60 years. You don't really have that with the streamers. If you want to yep. sort of, of have an analogy with the streamers, it, it's really like fast fashion. You buy something in terms of content and then you throw it yeah. away after a certain amount of time. But the problem is, yeah. is that mm. unlike fast fashion, which is cheap, the programs that the streamers have to buy are generally quite expensive. Yeah. But are we not seeing a bit more of a content makeup there, Ian? Because like, I, don't get me wrong, the fast fashion, the expensive fast fashion, I'm here for it. Like I get that, you know, these marquee titles were very signature to that early period of the streaming wars. But we are seeing now, I'm trying to think of a good fashion analogy now that you'll get now, like a kind of like a like traditional cashmere yeah. jumper or cashmere coat, like, uh, you know, timeless piece of um, timeless, timeless, timeless item, wardrobe item. You know, things like some of that comfort TV come back, right? So we've always seen things like NCIS, um, we see suits now, suits kind of go to a whole revival um in the u.s and beyond some of these more like it, it kind of proving that you know it doesn't always have to be big and new and squid game or the mandalorian or you know it, but, it can but it, but there it, actually is value to be drilled there from the catalog yeah. if you're able to surface it and and and, and 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 for your audience to discover it and kind of rediscover it but it, but isn't it interesting on those examples though because those were kind of created out of the they those evolved out of network television and so all of the incentives in network tv you're all you're going for the 100 episodes do you know what I mean because that means you can maximize the value of the show and you can sell it across the networks that's that, that was the dream number that you know seinfeld or fraser all of those shows wanted to get to because then then the benefits would be massive whereas those incentives don't really exist in the same way on the streaming platform so i wonder whether that's also a factor in the the reason that you get the the kind of the flashes and but then they don't seem to sustain because there isn't the same incentive to kind of build those mega hits see i think that's a discovery problem andy and i think that's one of the issues that the streamers have is because the money is going on fast fashion and it's not on an, an investment in the longer term and we see this particularly with kids because kids don't binge on the 28-day model, right? Kids binge when they want to binge. Um, so, you know, that kind of longer-term investment of building an audience and, you know, that that cutting a series after one season is is kind of lost money because you're not you're, you're not able to build on, on what you've started. Um, I think that might be some something that could come home to roost. But, you know, I, Discovery on streaming is like one of my things that I'm like, ew, I hate it. Like, I know. It's well, I think also as well what you have, <laughs> it, it, it's interesting in many ways. If you look at uh, some of the steps that have been taken, there is a back to the, the future moment here. So the streamers have gone away from promoting binge viewing to more the release one per week, just like linear TV. If you look at the deal between ESPN and Charter, you know, they're trying to get back in many ways the old pay TV model with things. And I think one of, uh, and we'll see what happens in a number of years' time. Uh, but 
one of my views always when looking at what's gone on with with the SVOD model uh, and the streaming model in particular is that I think if in a couple of years' time, this is going to be a classic case, uh, a, a strategic business case in business schools as to how fundamentally strong businesses really just mess things up. I would use a stronger word than that, but I realise this is a public podcast. Uh, and because they they panicked. The, the, the bosses of these studios panicked. Yes, there was pressure on the US pay TV model. Yes, there were concerns over, over what was happening with, with the cost side of things and Netflix coming on and so forth. But they chucked away a model that had fundamentally worked very well for, for them for several decades. And instead of thinking, how can we make this model more resilient and how can we reform it? What they essentially did was chuck it under the bus. And now we're very much seeing the consequences of this in terms of the what we're seeing, the losses that all these companies are sustaining. And, the, and from a shareholder value perspective, these losses are huge. I mean, you're talking $3 billion of losses of Peacock alone on streaming. Disney over the past three quarters has probably been sort of, of close to $3 billion of losses as well. I mean, it, the, these are very, very large numbers that we're talking about here. And not only that have they done is what they've opened the door to is other competition because everyone talks about Netflix being the potential long-term gainer. gainer. But yeah, realistically, if you, if you take this, I mean, I, my background is a historian. So when I looked at the streamers, the thing that 18 months ago, and the timing of this wasn't particularly great because it, it, the, the piece literally came out the same day that Russia invaded Ukraine. But the sort of analogies here that came up with were, was what you saw with the streamers, what was going on was akin to what you saw sort of in World War One, where you've got everyone just coming in, fighting amongst themselves and really sort of, of driving themselves to exhaustion. And in the end, what happened was that you had outside players come in and pick up the spoils. And it, the case in the outside players here would be the tech companies. What has happened with streaming is it allowed the likes of mm. Amazon, Apple, Google, if it so decides, to get a space in a lucrative, particularly the US sports market, which is particularly lucrative, but other areas of the ecosystem as well. And you can't go back from that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and you're talking about like the seven billion, or sorry, the three billion loss. And meanwhile, YouTube was making seven billion a quarter in, in advertising and, and, and not making any major content in, investments, you know, yeah. in comparison to that. And so, so does that mean that you sorry Go. does that mean that you you're you know saying that this this kind of slow down and okay let's take a step back that back to the future moment is is that going to work or is that a short term fix it's another sticking plaster i think all these companies particularly with the major studios just don't know where to go next they put themselves in a in mm. sort of really into a, a strategic dead end and it's very very hard for them to get out of it. I think some of the weaker players, the smaller players, could probably get out of it by being bought. You know, one or two of them may get to a point where what happens is they just reach a, reach a, a, a modus vivendi where they they reduce the losses that they have and they have a streaming service that is okay, but they effectively go back to model that, that like with the old pay TV operators, they're carried on their platforms but instead of reduce, uh, of receiving costs for their content, it's a revenue share model, which is more, in some ways, more advantageous to the, the pay TV yeah. platforms than it is to the content producers because the cost of the risk is passed on. But I think all these management teams, if you, if you look mm. at their actions, if you look at what they're trying to do at the moment, quite frankly, you know, what, is, what is abundantly clear, certainly of the US studios, is... They don't really know where where they need to go. Yeah, they are stuck, and yeah. they they think that they oh, yeah. sorry sorry Andy they know themselves they're stuck, and the problem is is that the solutions they're giving to the markets at the moment fine shareholders may accept them for three months six months maybe nine months, but at some point it's going to be entirely clear that what they promised in long term value creation just will not appear. Mm. Yeah, and that in in itself might again 
bring back to the fore those strikes that we mentioned at the top. You know, we're just kicking the they're kicking the problem down the road, the can down the road. And, and it may even be sooner than three years because whatever they try, I, it, it certainly feels like after the current strike, they won't wait so long to pull the same lever again if they think that what's coming is inequitable. Yeah. And, and, uh, and regarding tech and these established brands, I mean, that Disney is very much in the kind of the center of that tension as well. Um, do you, what kind of store do you put in rumors about a potential takeover of Disney from Apple or uh, a lot of the, a lot of those news stories that have been kind of spinning? <laughs> oh God, I'm going to be getting a reputation just a gossiper like spreading, spreading muck around. <laughs> Alice, yeah, that's true. Actually, that is, that is what Alice typically do. Okay, so uh, it's part of the course. I, um, I mean, what would say it is, I don't think it's going to happen. I can see why people are talking about it, and yes, there is a logic to saying if Apple really wants to get big in streaming, then taking somebody like Disney, who has a whole range of content, has ESPN in particular, also as well have the theme parks. That could be a great way of doing so but i think the problems that you would that apple would have <laughs> they'd be very very large i mean for for a start this deal would be huge i mean you're probably looking at, at a deal when you take over disney's debt yeah. and then you pay a premium for disney's shares which you would have to do because bear in mind disney's shares have had a, a really poor performance over the past 18 months so you'd have to to bid a, a significant premium to where we are now to get shareholders to accept. You're probably looking at a deal would be somewhere in the range of $250 billion altogether. Now, to put that in context, that's around four yeah. times, just under four times what Microsoft is paying for Activision. Yeah, these are not small numbers. And so if you are, so first of all, you've just got the size of the deal. So theoretically, it can be done. Apple has got the financial capability to do it. It could list some more shares if it wanted to. But to go back to shareholders and say, we want to do this, what is essentially is a massive bet. You're going to get a lot of dissatisfaction, particularly when Apple's own performance is coming under scrutiny because it's seen declining top line growth in several quarters in a row. The question marks over yeah. what happens with you know, the pricing strategy moving forwards. There are question marks over what happens in its relationship with China and so forth. You've got a management team in Apple who tends to be very conservative. If you look at Tim Cook, this is not somebody who swings the bat when it comes to M&A, nor indeed when they're doing it in cash returns. You would then have to take over an organization of your Apple, taking over an organization in Disney that, first of all, it brings you into areas such as theme parks, which are not really your sort of core core area and so yeah. forth, but which are the main cash flow generator of what Disney does. And it also as well brings you into the political sphere. Because Disney is one of the companies at the moment that is very much in the political firing line, um, you know, no more so than in Florida. So when you stack all those things up, you then look at Apple's actions and the personality of their management team. You could never say never, but you'd have to look at it and say, this, this would be very, I mean, I won't make one of these sort of, I'll do X if it happens just in case it does happen. But you would look at it and say, this is, ex no, 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 nothing like that whatsoever. This is, a, I know, very boring. Um, this is, ex there's a hat in the back of that room, I'm sure yeah. that you could be. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, we'll see about that. I, um, there's, there's, I just can't, I just cannot see that deal being, being done. You've also, well, you've got too many strategic questions over Disney yeah, at the I mean, moment as well. Yeah, I, I, I kind of happen to agree with that. I had one follow-up question on that was, what about, could pick, could Apple kind of go a la carte, say, you know, we don't want to have the whole meal, but um, we wouldn't mind buying Pixar. Um, Pixar have a kind of heritage that's already kind of aligned to Steve Jobs. In a way, they can present it as coming back to its true home. Uh, Pixar's been relatively unloved by Disney over the recent years. Um so, you know, so is it, I could see that being something that they could incorporate without it capsizing um, Apple itself because it was yeah. kind of... Yeah, and I, I think that's fair enough. There are certain parts. I mean, you look at uh, 
Disney already. It's already looking at selling bits like ABC. There's question marks over ESPN. Pixar could be something that they say with the studios. The studios have underperformed their, their peers. In the recent hits, you could argue, uh, is there some, and particularly in terms of the animation side of things, that's been a, a, a focus of criticism. So they could say, maybe sell to Apple. That That's a more realistic possibility. I think, again, though, and it, it in a way, there's a, a, a point here akin to what we're saying about the studios just now. I don't think necessarily Apple knows itself what its strategy will be when it comes to content. When it's the consumer, yes, services are growing quickly. Mm. That's great. There's a question mark over hardware. Where does content fit in? And yes, they've made some content, but again, look at their moves in content. This is not a rapid rollout of Apple TV. This is not, I mean, Amazon had different reasons for doing it because it was trying to promote Prime, the the shopping service through through its TV offering. But it's not as though Apple has Mm. gone out with this saying, we're making a, a big push. To get a large number of customers, it. Yeah. Sorry, Emma. Think... Yeah, no. So the Apple TV offering, I think, particularly from a kid's point of view, it's not at scale of volume, but it is very considered awesome. and precise on the yeah. quality side. That does actually really mm. align with Disney. Um, mm. My my money, my hat eating opportunity <laughs> would be more on um, Skydance animation. Okay. You know, so. Skydance Animation um, have been around for for a while. Um, Lasseter went there to head up uh, head up that uh, that operation. Yep. They've done an output deal now on the animation side with Apple. Um, you know they're not in the Pixar leagues or the Pixar DreamWorks Illumination Sony Animation leagues yet, but there is potential to grow, and it feels like a bit more of a a measured, you know, a measured investment or acquisition potentially. Not that I, you know, not that I'm familiar with the the structure mm-hmm. of how that company is, but you know, um, Apple have been very measured in, in 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 their offering, even even beyond kids as well. You know, like they've had, you know, they've not gone for like let's license Friends yeah. and the you know let's license everything that's popular. It's it's much it's very original led. Ted Lasso has been you know brilliant mm-hmm. a brilliant winner for them, mm-hmm. but. Um, it's not been that kind of mass approach. I, I, I'm not quite sure what they're trying to do with it other than make a beautiful content yeah. offering, which I appreciate <laughs> in its own right. But, you know, mm-hmm. how, how that fits into the strategy of how they're, dri- tra- they're driving their business is, you know, quite more of a question. Is it just a marketing oh. opportunity? Well, or- that might begin to look might begin to look prescient in this, uh, if we're saying that actually this idea of disposable content mm. is falling out of favour. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, I, I- definitely. I was just just on that one final point on the Disney thing. You know, what is there any clue from Mayer and Staggs being brought back in by Iger to advise? Is there any clue there as to whether Blackstone is circling uh, too? No, I don't I don't think necessarily Blackstone circling. Again, two hundred and fifty billion dollars is a massive deal. Yeah, for private equity to do this deal. I mean, you are talking this is Especially in, in, in these financial markets, it is as much money yeah, as it sounds like. This is like. not. This is almost certainly not going to happen. Again, <laughs> you would have to get a consortium of private equity firms to get a huge consortium of private equity firms. You're talking about in an interest rate environment where the Fed was just saying last week that interest rates are going to be higher for longer. Uh, my view is that they'll probably come down in 2024 to get close to the election. But nevertheless, the signaling along this is is that debt is no longer cheap on here. So there is not the same source of free money, effectively free money that there was 18 months ago for these sorts of deals. I think what's happened with Bob Iger bringing them back as as advisors, I go back to the point before, is that essentially, I don't think there is, to me, that's a sign that, and I might be completely wrong with this, that Bob Iger doesn't necessarily have a clear-cut strategy as to what he wants to do. And essentially, by bringing people in, it's effectively mm. saying, OK, yeah. maybe these people can come up with ideas. Maybe I can bounce ideas off them. But this is you know, I, I'm not really sure. I mean, look at look at what they said last um, last week in terms of their investor day, where the extra money is going. Sixty billion dollars on theme parks and cruise ships. Now, now, mm. personally, I think that makes sense from a profitability standpoint. Yeah, it probably makes sense as well from a longer term view if you take the view that 
yeah, you look at all these sort of, of historically from all major events, so world wars, Great Depression, etc. what they tend to lead to is permanent change in, in people's mindsets and how they view things. So if you take what has gone on with COVID and say that the mindset change there is a sort of carpe diem attitude and people say, we want to live our lives again, we lost time, etc. Yeah. then you can see why theme parks, resorts, etc. would fit very much into that longer term model. But if you're spending that amount of money on theme parks, yeah, in an environment where money is not is no longer free, that means that somewhere somewhere else isn't really getting the investment uh, on there. And so that that mm. pretty much tells you, I think, in terms of for Disney, linking back to this point about streamers, what they do in TV, etc. That again, theme parks are seen as cash flow, highly generative, highly profitability. From a shareholder perspective, people like them. TV lesser. Mm. Mm. They're so <laughs> that, yeah, that's what. Well, <laughs> believe me, I, yeah, I, I was going to say something. I shut my mouth. I, uh, <laughs> but I, I, Emily, I actually want to come back to what you said just just very very quickly because I know there's there's other things to do. What you said about um, maybe Apple, sort of, of again getting into the animation space. Two years ago, two, well, actually a bit more than that. Look at Amazon buying MGM. Everyone then said that's the start of a new strategy. Yeah. Where has that gone? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's true. Although I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. can say that about a few things when exactly. it comes to Amazon, I think. Yeah, that's um, very true. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, whereas I think like Apple, Amazon have been in the content game for, you know, they're, they're the second they were the second people there after netflix you know and and, and they've gone through lots of iterations of, of that approach plus you know i think there's a hefty amount of you know shopping on behalf of the ceo's mm. whims a little bit i yeah. think we've seen that in content yeah. acquisitions like Bo- the borat movie do you know yeah. what i mean like um whereas i think in, at apple it feels like the content curation and offering is is much more considered and and yeah. It's not being done on ego. Yeah, um, it's definitely more consistent. I think. That would be that would be my view. But uh, I, and also the, the other thing I think that would need to happen with that is is uh, you know is considering theatrical releases for those movies. I don't think you're going to ever get that cut through with an animated movie or, or build a studio of regard if you're not doing theatrical releases. But Apple, Apple could totally do that. So um, you know the, because they don't have the skin in the game from from the streaming point of view. Like you know it's 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 it's, it's a specific offering. Yeah, we'll I mean, see. I think just very quickly on that, I think Apple Apple's content has, it, it feels like it comes from Apple. It feels like it has that stamp of quality on it. Whereas um, there's some great content on Amazon, but, mm. but none of it has a distinctive point of view or a tone of voice that makes you think that's come from Amazon. I mean, it's quite hard to distinguish, I think, on Amazon, the stuff that they've acquired from the stuff that's an Amazon original. Whereas with with Apple, it's clearly very considered and curated in terms of what they're uh, what they're commissioning. I think so. I think yeah. there is quite a difference just in terms of that attitude, really. And it's mad because if you think of Amazon, it's like, yeah, MGM will have you, Lord of the Rings will have you. Do you know? Like, and, and like, there's huge investments yeah. in all in, in this content. You know, um, yeah. Borat will have you, uh, Hotel Transylvania, three or four will have you. Like, it's very. And, and um, I just, I don't understand why they haven't made a bigger success of it because the shopping element, particularly when it comes to kids content and football content, you know, knowing who your fans are and being able to sell them other products just seems like such an obvious win. So I'm kind of not clear why they haven't gotten it, you know, haven't made it go further over the, over the, over the time they've been in the game. And they have been in the game for the longest next to Netflix. So they should know a lot more about all the issues you talk about discovery audience uh, you know subscriber acquisition like that well i think i think with that i think i think a lot of the problem there (laughs) compared certainly compared with netflix is what exactly has been amazon's end goal with this so when it started off offering sort of tv the the aim was to get more people to take prime because they did more shopping on prime so it used to i mean this is going back sort of a long time ago but you know go back around six seven years ago a prime customer would buy 20 times more goods the non-prime customer in the UK market. 
So if you could get people to go on Prime, then essentially what was happening was you were you, you would drive that traffic. If you look at things now for Amazon, its model has completely changed. So Amazon doesn't split out its profits, but you're probably looking at Amazon's advertising probably makes around 50% plus of its overall profits. I'd say actually 55% plus on the numbers. Yeah, the Mm. e-commerce business is losing a... a, 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 I mean, the figures I estimated last year were something like the e-commerce business was probably losing around $10 billion per year at least um, off that. Just because... So, you know, one question for Amazon now is what sort of business is it in? Before it was very clear, it was an online commerce business and the media side was very much to drive what was mm-hmm. happening on the so on the e-commerce side to get more people to take e-commerce and buy goods on retail. Now you've got a strategy of they're focusing much more on products such as AWS, but also as well advertising, because that's really what drives the profitability uh, and so on. And so I think when it comes mm-hmm. to their content and what their strategy is, the question mark now is... Where does that, because their advertising is all effectively retail media, where now does that premium content sit in? And this is why the announcement, I think, last week in terms of advertising could be quite interesting because we don't know what, none of us knows what exactly is their true true driver. But if their driver is to say, we can grab a share of the advertising market, and we also think as well that given we have a retail media product where if you take the view that TV and search works traditionally well together, why not a TV products and retail media could be effective and that could drive extra advertising revenues for us. What that would suggest is that Amazon probably will get a lot more focused when it comes to its TV product because that will be seen as, a, as it were as a core driver of profitability at the moment, it's e-commerce business. Mm. The primary, probably the primary um, reason, the primary driver of their thinking behind their e-commerce business is effectively to drive advertising. It's not to sell goods; it's to drive advertising because that's where it makes yeah. its profits. Right. Mm. Yeah. On things, is what they're doing on offering advertising on Prime. Is that to add another leg to the advertising strategy? And and I read I read today that they've announced a, a big investment in Anthropic, which is a, a company, basically a competitor mm-hmm. to OpenAI. Is that do you think that's another strand in their strategy? I think with again it it could be. I suspect it's more. I mean, I'm relatively skeptical about AI long term. I think my view, my view on AI is that Google's really doing it for defensive reasons mm. in search. Microsoft is probably doing it to consolidate all the longer tail of players in that market. And you could argue Amazon feels, A, as though it needs to do something. But B, also as well, maybe AI can help. If you, if you take the view that AI will help in search, then there's a logical argument for saying that AI should also help in retail media as well. So from that standpoint, yeah, the investment makes a lot of sense. Yeah, if they're positioning themselves as something which is yet yeah, they're future proofing themselves against potential uh, potential competitors. And it's it's outside the TV space, but if you look at what's happening in retail media at the moment, ever since Walmart came out last November and said we've got 30% plus advertising growth when it comes to, to our platform. Oh, and by the way, advertising revenues are very high margin for us. That awoke other companies and investors, the potential for retail media, and everyone is now piling into the space. And so from an Amazon perspective, you dominated that space before, and now you've suddenly got other players who are coming into your patch. So you need to do something. So I don't think AI, I don't think AI's primary function or their, their primary reason for doing that stake was really to help with their prime product. I think it's probably more focused on what they do in retail media. In terms of uh, TikTok, I was wondering if we could talk about TikTok uh, (laughs) and whether it's managing to succeed where Quibi failed, in your view. Um, (laughs) Quibi, my God. 
Hooray! Yeah, blast from the past yeah, there. But, yeah. Um, but in terms of, uh, you know, having read about uh, Netflix releasing the first episode of Top Boy in mm-hmm. three-minute chunks on uh, on TikTok, uh, do we do we think that this is the rever- the resurgence of that Quibi type format? But actually, is TikTok going to do it right? Yeah, I mean, arguably yes. I think if you look at, I mean, TikTok does short uh, has pioneered short chunks. You would say, in terms of the model. The and I think if you look at the reason you know, why Quibi failed, well, Quibi was essentially coming from a television background and trying, as it were, to get it into mm, short form yep. content. If you look at what TikTok is, TikTok's so core strength is short form content delivered in a short form way that attracts mm. audiences. Uh, and so it is, and if you look at what it's doing now, it's expanding it, its length of formats that you can do. So short answer is yes, I think it can work. I think they've had clear success in pioneering short form content to mass audiences. The key question here will be, can they get advertising revenues? I mean, both YouTube and TikTok are very clear that what they want to do is go after TV advertising revenues. So again, if you are doing that, then you have to have some sort of premium, some sort of premium long form content that is going to attract advertisers on here. So I think this is very much the first step in what they do. So this is potentially longer term. This could be very significant. Do I think, for example, they're going to take over the mass, the mass market? Do I think this is going to change the TV model? Arguably, no. I think when it comes to content, what people like to do is, yes, people will watch content over their mobile phone. But video content, quite frankly, is the biggest screen you've got. That's the way that most people will continue to enjoy it. So from that standpoint, I don't think this is necessarily going to be a, a mass takeover of the market by TikTok. But it does have the potential, I think, longer term to take a share of uh, quite a chunk out uh, of general video advertising budgets. And I'd say if you look at where YouTube is versus TikTok, YouTube is a bit like the it's a bit like the aging hipster. You know, at some point, yeah, it was kind of, yeah. And apologies either for any of yourselves or anyone else me. in the audience. But it's a bit like the people who are twenty who went to clubs and are still sort of trying to go to the same clubs when they're in their fifties, right? I mean, yeah. At some point, it's a bit. You gotta, you gotta say enough, enough. That, that, that's the way that TikTok are thinking. Did you try to go to a club at the weekend, Ian? (laughs) No, I can tell you what. I can't think of anything worse now to actually do. Uh, Yeah, I'd have to be under a a very uh, sort of significantly, sort of, uh, uh, significantly drunk in order to do that. But, but, um, but, but, but no, it's a. um, I think YouTube has got this. uh, Is now starting to get this reputation a bit like Facebook where it, it's seen as a bit, <laughs> it's a bit stayed. You can see why it isn't it in terms of regulation, you know, the pressures that are, are on the companies to scale back uh, and so forth. And I think TikTok now has the potential to come into this market. And for those advertisers who are thinking, okay, we want something that is short form content. We want to attract mass audiences. Let's go to TikTok. I'd make two extra points on this. Yeah. One is... Yeah, I think one of the, uh, and there is the whole case of Quibi there, but it's absolutely right. But one thing that I think the broadcasters should consider is if their core competency is video, should they be trying to think about sort of getting more into into short form content at a premium level or doing or doing something like that? Yes, Quibi was a mistake, but arguably it's for, for a number of other reasons. But Broadcasters do have the facilities, they do have the competency, they have the audiences and so forth on there. The second thing is that I would say with TikTok is, and I don't think this will necessarily happen, but bear in mind over the next 12 to 15 months, we've already had a significant amount of talk about TikTok regulatory rise and so forth. That is just going to increase because we're going into the US election cycle. There's going to be, you know, Trump and Biden are very close. This is, TikTok, China, etc., is going to be way up on the agenda. 
politically things are already sort of moving in this direction. You can see it also in the UK and sort of talk about sort of TikTok and and sort of the the inability of authorities to sort of 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 control what go, goes on there. So again, and the reason why I mention it in this context is again it comes back to a reputation standpoint. If you get it being in the in the crosshairs again of politicians and regulators and and so on, would that put advertisers off? Would that pe- put people like Netflix off? Yet now in the regulatory talk, we're in a pretty quiet cycle. 12 months time, if TikTok mm. is central debate, would Netflix be willing to do this sort of deal again? Yeah. yeah. TikTok, TikTok very much is like the rebellious teenager right now. And it's kind of like the wild, like the wild west, you know, without, you know, the regulation and, and all that kind of yeah. stuff. But, but in the wild west, that's where organic behaviors kind of emerge. And that, I think that's what yeah. you're seeing now with the streamers um, yeah. placing content on there. It was uh, Peacock had put Killing It on there um, a, a, a few months ago as well. In that, you know, people who are pirating this content are were seeing major engagement, and it was actually driving viewing. We had that example yeah, yeah. from made on, on on Netflix. Um, yeah. and, and, but the other and, thing about TikTok is, the, so that YouTube, the aging hipster has, is there's no yeah. content ID, right? There's no like that is that whole system of content ID or claiming, you know, copyrighted works, etc. Just isn't in place as far as I understand or know on, on the yeah. platform. So. Yeah people can do this at scale they're not necessarily making money off it the same way they are they were on youtube but you know that whole monetization piece of you know if you're ripping off somebody's content you're making loads of money off it, it, it it's not necessarily there but um yeah yeah but it, it, it has that discoverability factor because it's like it's like linear right like you just channel flick until you find yeah. something yeah. you like and then you watch it and, and i think that goes back to your the, what you're saying about the problem of the discoverability particularly on younger um mm-hmm. for younger content is the the reason that Netflix put so much content on YouTube is because that's where where people were discovering kids' content. And I mm. think the same applies to TikTok. It kind of makes sense from a marketing and discoverability point of view to have your content there in the hope that then they'll come to see the long-form stuff on your own platform. Uh, one, one thing that you said about the Asian hipster thing, I wonder if there's also a dynamic where when YouTube and Facebook try to copy the dance moves of TikTok. Copy the dance moves um, oh, no. <laughs> Basically, all they're doing, is, all they're doing is, is exposing the fact that it wasn't their original dance moves in the first place. And the, and the cool hip, hip person dancing in the club is, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the dad dance trying to copy the younger 20-something dance. I'll, I'll start with yeah. my analogies there. That's it. No, but, I, but I, you know what? I think that's absolutely right. I think it's you know you look at shorts and you uh, and you look at reels. They've got they don't have anything on TikTok. I mean, TikTok is yeah, it's fantastic products and it is like the Wild West simply for the fact that if you are Facebook and Google, at the end of the day, you have to answer to regulators and politicians. Yeah, yes, they've done a great job of mm-hmm. of circumventing for years and years, but the chickens have come come home to roost here. Well, well, if you want another analogy, I mean, TikTok is very much like Coca-Cola, yeah, in a way. It, it, it's sort of, it's got great appeal. People love it, but you don't know necessarily what's in there, certainly when it comes to the algorithm. <laughs> yeah. and, and as long as that stays, yeah, as it is now, then you can see how that organic environment can continue on and it can continue to be a place where new content comes from. The risk would be, is that yeah? At some point, somebody goes. We know we want to know we want to know what's in there. You've got to disclose the ingredients. Mm-hmm. And what we'd say is, if you go back and look again at the the history of regulation, go back. Yeah, the 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 example or the parallel with with social media, and the clue is in the name social media. The media part of it is go back to hundred years ago with with cinema. Now, cinema, have you ever seen the movie Babylon? Yeah, the excesses of Hollywood. Cinema in the yeah. 1920s w- was massively unregulated. I mean, whatever you think in terms of, of what you would get on pictures now, what happened back then was more extreme than what you would get sort of, of now, simply because it, it was unregulated. And for years, they didn't know what to do. And eventually what happened was that... The politicians and regulators, and crucially prompted by the largest players in the industry, devised a scheme of regulation that lasted for decades. And so this is the other thing to consider now, and you've already seen this sort of, of 
happening. Do at some point the dads in the room, the Facebooks and the, and the YouTubes, sort of say that we need to have regulation in order to try and curtail what TikTok is doing, ostensibly to protect audiences, really to protect their own revenue streams. Yeah. I think Can't have any is doing all of those cool dance moves. Let's. I'm let's never ever it. going clubbing with you guys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and there's that's a that's a good that's a great call. That's a great call. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it, it's like uh, yeah, you, YouTube is the one that's looking at TikTok saying, "I was once called the Wild West." <laughs> yeah, but you got to grow up, kid. But but YouTube but TikTok doesn't necessarily have to. Yeah, it, it's China. It, it, it's nobody knows what's in there. Nobody knows what the system is. Yes, yeah. and quite frankly, regulators at the moment don't. You can tell they don't properly understand how it works. Mm. So I think it's the situation is like to continue for a couple of years. The question mark becomes: at some point, do things change? And I think there's a good chance they do. Yeah, I agree. Awesome. Should we- should we leave it there, folks? As we're kind of this has been brilliant, though. Like I could go on for another half hour. <laughs> Joe, did you have any gaming or unreal questions you you wanted to? Well, I mean, I think we could uh, we could perhaps save that for another time. But I would okay. certainly love to delve into these kind of social gaming platforms as nascent content hubs. We've got Roblox and we've got Fortnites mm-hmm. that are beginning to. Uh, well, we you know we know that. Uh, Huge movie concerts have been debuted in there, but now we've got debuts of uh, of animated movies, and Spin Master certainly seems to be leaning into Roblox as a as a content uh, premiering platform, which uh, I think is interesting. You've got, but I mean, that's the, for another time. I think it's for another time. But I'll leave you with this thought. I mean, I think this is what you're seeing across media as well. It's an ugly word to use, but I see it. I think what you're seeing here is de-siloization. You know, what you're getting Ooh. is, oh yeah, that's a, that's a word. <laughs> that is a word. But you're you seeing, you, you're, you are here. <laughs> you are seeing the barriers between different forms of entertainment break down, and I think you're right, me, because this could be for 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 a long time. But this is games morphing into movies, movies morphing into games, kids' products morphing into movies. This is, I think, this is going to be one of the key trends over the next couple of years. But yeah. That's for another time. Definitely. Well, let's uh, let's make sure we come back and, and delve into that one. Uh, it's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much, Ian, for joining us today. No, it's been a pleasure. It's been, it's been absolutely great. I now know not to go out clubbing with you. <laughs> so, or, or not that you know now not to go out clubbing with, with you know, <laughs> at all. And uh, um, I said, hopefully that, yeah, that's of interest. If anyone's got any questions, then you're always happy to always have to chat through any of the comments okay uh that's it for today's episode of kids media club podcast uh, we hope you had as much fun listening as we did talking about all things kids entertainment and if you enjoyed today's show please consider leaving us a review and hitting the subscribe button and until then uh, keep listening and take care thanks <laughs>